Well, my assignment tonight, and apparently I've chosen to accept it, is to talk about the influence of my work and that of my discipline on public policy. Now, any such talk by a sociologist is bound to, to be more aspirational than inspirational <laughs> because the impact of our field on policy has been depressingly small. So it might appear that this really is a mission impossible, for those of you who missed the earlier reference. Now, now, Jim Coleman, after whom my fellow position is named, might seem a major exception, and, and yet the reality is that Jim's greatest impact on policy came from his 1966 report on schools and inequality, which had a long, ponderous name that no one remembers. Everyone just called it the Coleman Report. But Jim wrote this, actually, when his academic career was just beginning, uh, and the deeper he got into theoretical argument, the more his influence on policy receded. Now, my own research has been on social networks and economic sociology, which might seem to be natural subjects to influence social policy, and, and yet... Uh, there is no Council of Social Advisors to complement the Council of Economic Advisors. And by the way, that's complement with an E. <laughs> and, and, and sociological advice has rarely been sought at the highest levels of policy formation. Now, why is that? It could be because the advice of professional economists has been so extraordinarily successful in preventing economic storms and calming economic waters... <laughs> But there are a few inconvenient facts standing in the way of, of that conclusion. Actually, um, there's a very nice book by the historian Michael Bernstein at UCSD, which points out that actually the influence of economists on policy has ebbed and flowed quite a lot in the course of the 20th, 20th century and 21st century. And uh, you can't always assume that it's, it's, it's that important. Um, now, but to come back to the sociology situation, my, my Italian colleague Carlo Trujillia asked a few years ago specifically why economic sociology, which would seem to have many ideas to offer for, for policy, has had so little influence. And his argument is that most economic sociologists favor meso- or macro-level analysis, talk about the way social networks function, and that's very complicated. And because it's so complicated, it's really hard to draw policy recommendations from it, whereas um, economists study the incentives of individuals we all know what that means, and, and, and recommends that policy shape those. So that is easy to understand, although I think in practice, in fact, it's, it's usually a lot more complicated than it looks. Um, I'd like to argue, though, that in fact, uh, contrary to what Carlo argued, that even though a lot of consequences of social network processes are hard to predict, and if you look at the recent literature on complex networks, it really is quite technical and, and complex, uh, but nevertheless, I think there are still some policy recommendations that might flow from studies of social networks that are actually pretty easy to understand and, and would be clear improvements over present practice. So, so let me talk a little bit about a whole class of policy ideas that sociologists could develop if they have the time and energy, uh, and if policy were taken more seriously by our discipline, uh, they would spend more time on that, but that probably is not going to happen until sociological policy ideas are actively solicited by policymakers. So there's a, as you see, there's a vicious circle here. Uh, and and um, because not many of us want to spend time spinning policy if there isn't much interest in it, but there won't be much interest in it if we're not doing it. 
How to break out of that circle is, a, is an important topic, but that's a topic for another day. But So let me suggest what, how we might go about this. The simplest way to talk about my idea is to say that it is extremely cost-effective to leverage the strength of existing social network processes. Now, employers do this all the time. Uh, they don't know the theory, but they know it works. Um, for example, when they hire through their own employees' social networks, because they know that the new recruits will be quickly socialized into the workplace and subjected to effective social control through their ties to current employees. Now, employers do not pay to create the trust and the relationships that have these effects, uh, nor could they if they wanted to. Uh, so it seems to me that leveraging social networks that already exist is the closest thing that we have to a free lunch in social life. <laughs> And, you know, cost matters a lot. And there, and there are many examples of this. So, for example, consumers buy used cars from relatives because they expect better disclosure and fairer prices. And, and they don't pay for those benefits, quite the contrary. Those raising money for good causes follow the contours of their networks to spark contagion and competition among those uh, who care about one another's opinions. And this makes so-called affinity fundraising highly effective. Unfortunately, parenthetically, I should say, this cuts both ways. As we know from famous cases of affinity fraud, <laughs> such as the network strategies of Bernie Madoff. <laughs> but, but that was just in parentheses. Um, there, there are... All, all the bad things have to be in parentheses, you know. Um, there are some easy translations of this principle into public policy. Consider public efforts, here's one example, I, I, I know something about labor markets. Consider public efforts to give the poor and or the unemployed new skills to help them emerge from poverty. This has been a, a big emphasis for many years. Uh, but the vast majority of such programs in the United States are conceived as efforts to improve the attitudes, the human capital, and the search skills of those enrolled. Uh, and... The reason we think of it that way, I think, has to do with the influence of, of psychology and economics on public policy. And the fact is that most such programs haven't been terribly successful, and the, that the few have, that have worked well have been those where trainers, those people helping these, these people, um, just happen to have good network connections to local employers, which they cultivated and used to help them place them. And there is some interesting research on this. Not much, but there's a little bit. Edwin Melendez and the late Ben Harrison worked on this. Now, the, the network principle here is really simple. Uh, in normal labor markets, most people find jobs through personal contacts. And if, if you get skills and you get psychological counseling, but you don't get connections to employers, then you're still disadvantaged compared to those who are connected to the people in employing companies. The solution, obviously, is to develop programs where some personnel are responsible for creating network connections to employers, gaining their trust, and brokering connections to their firms for clients they can vouch for because they actually know them. But this doesn't happen very often, and one of the reasons is that training has often been identified as the province of clinical psychologists whose conception of professional identity precludes the dirty work of traveling to factories, you know, which are not very pleasant environments compared to the, to the nice places where they do this training. So, so the, the sociology of professions helps us see, I think, not only why the policy is misguided, but also how vested interests 
create resistance to the kinds of changes we need. Now, I think there are many such network applications to policy, including the important task of finding budding terrorists, for example, which is very much of a network problem. Those concerned with public health are already somewhat aware of the need to find and focus on key network nodes or hubs, as we say, which are critical in the spreading of a disease or a bad habit like smoking or drug use, and of the the importance of concentrating your efforts on neutralizing their impact, because that's much more cost-effective than targeting random users or random sexual partners. Um, But systematic ideas about social networks are very slow to enter the general policy discourse, and I think we need to make more strenuous efforts in this direction. And I want to add that such initiatives are really politically neutral. Uh, in fact, and this is for the libertarians among you in the audience, I'm looking for, <laughs> there, there are no doubt some. Um, network policy principles Uh, should have a lot of appeal to people who want to reduce the role of government. Because when you leverage the strength of existing social networks, you you reduce the need to construct large bureaucracies whose interface with natural processes is, is stilted and difficult and costly. And in fact, if you look at the history of social programs, that has been one of the things that has hampered many well-meaning social programs. So this is a very abbreviated appeal, obviously, for a more serious look at how social policy could be improved and streamlined by taking social processes just as seriously as economic and psychological ones. And if if my comments on this occasion move the dial even a little bit in that way, I'll be very gratified. Thank you.